I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Ghost in the Shell. ゴーストの You are the first of your kind, but you're not invulnerable. Maybe next time you can design me better. I don't know who to trust. You trust me, right? I know I have a past. I'll find out who I was. Everything they told you was a lie. Who are you? They did not save your life. They stole it. This episode is about the original groundbreaking 1995 anime film and we are doing it as a special commission for an anonymous friend of ours only known as The File Getter. It is not the same as the manga book series initially running from 1989 to 1991 and written by Masamune Shiro, or the follow-up series Human Error Processor, which ran from 1991 to 1996, or the third manga Man-Machine Interface from 1997, or the fourth manga series from 2019, The Human Algorithm. It is not the same as the anime TV series Standalone Complex, which ran for two seasons and 52 episodes from 2002 to 2005. It is not solid State Society, the movie that tied up the loose ends from that series. It is not the follow-up reimagined Ghost in the Shell Arise, based on the 2013 to 2016 manga Sleepless Eye and running for a televisual miniseries of five 50-minute OVAs, which ran from 2013 to 2015, or the reformatted series of 10 25-minute episodes known as Arise Alternate Architecture, licensed by Crunchyroll in 2015, plus one more film Ghost in the Shell, the new movie from 2015, which we did also watch. They've got Nintendo nomenclature there. The new movie from 2015, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. When's he going home? It's not the 2008 reskinning of the original film known as 2.0, which is not a sequel, but adds a different color tone and new CG animated sequences over the old 90s computer graphical overlay, though we will be talking about that later. It is not the 2004 actual sequel to 
to the original, focusing on Major Kusanagi's stoic partner Batao, Ghost in the Shell, Innocence. Though we did watch that too. And Sharon especially really liked that. And it is definitely not the 2017 American live-action remake starring a very Caucasian Scarlett Johansson, though we will be talking about that too, because we also saw that again in order to illustrate the different approaches to a very similar story. Ghost in the Shell, or Mobile Armored Riot Police. Which is not at all what it's about. (laughs) It's the Japanese kanji directly translated. The books and subsequent adaptation. Well, I don't know why. Uh, if it's called Mobile Armored Riot Police, how is it not confused with Mobile Suit Gundam or Dominion Tank Police? Indeed. And I suppose, in a way, it is about that, but it's kind of like calling Terminator a big robot with gun. Yes. I mean, that's, it's a very literal translation of what you're likely to see yeah. and, and removes the poetry of Ghost in the Shell, yes. which is uh, an evocative name. The books and subsequent adaptations contain Shiro's thoughts on design and philosophy. This is lifted from Wikipedia, including sociological issues, the consequences of technological advances and themes on the nature of consciousness and identity. You must know already, folks at home, this was a massive influence on The Matrix. And if you watch 2.0, you'll be like, yeah, I could see why there's an influence on The Matrix. And then you go back and watch the original from 1994. And you go, oh. oh so much green text, <laughs> so much green stuff. and, yeah. and Like it, down to camera shot choices mm. and uh, scene framing. <laughs> Primarily, s- primarily set in the mid-21st century in the fictional Japanese city of Nihama Prefecture, otherwise known as Newport City, we follow the members of Public Security Section 9, which is a boring name, a special operations task force made up of former military officers and police detectives. Possibly it is called Public Security Section 9 because they didn't want to call it Mobile Armoured Riot Police. Police detectives. <laughs> police. Cops. Police cops. <laughs> Political intrigue and counter-terrorism operations are standard fare for Section 9, but the various actions of corrupt officials, companies, and cybercriminals in each scenario are unique and require the diverse skills of Section 9 staff to prevent a series of incidents from escalating. So effectively, a cybercrimes unit. Uh, but a bit more hands-on. Yes. Yeah. It's black hat with machine guns. Yeah, one of the elements which is explored more in the new movie, I believe. which The was, new movie from 2015. From 2015, which was a concept that I found particularly intriguing, is the idea that in this future, the concept of the nation and the, the country mm. as a mm. geographical entity is well starting to, has already got to a a state of dissolution and collapse because the amount of data and communication that can now transmit around the world regardless of national boundaries and the fact that governments and uh, the people who are trying to hold these states together do not have the capacity to control this communication means that the the nation as an ideal is falling apart and people make their own groupings depending on who they talk to rather than where they are. There is a generational aspect to it as well. The police chief, the old white-haired dude who looks like a slightly shrunken Heihachi Mishima is clearly old and was born way before the internet became like this. So he's kind of like, 
He never says it out loud, and probably he does in standalone complex, but he's like, listen, this is a young people problem. I'm just organising you at this yeah. stage. I'm going to be dead by the time you get to the end of this investigation, so let's not worry about that. But there's... And specifically, the young people here are cyborgs. They're fused with machinery Absolutely. and data tech already, so they have one foot in the digital world. Yeah, and without wanting to race ahead too much, one of the significant plot points in this film is an entity claiming political asylum. You called it an entity. Wow, that ties into something I'll say later, but continue. Okay. Uh, but specifically, the the place and time that they choose to do that is, it, it could literally be anywhere. He needs to, sorry, he, they need to claim their protection from a specific group of people. Again, it's about communication, not about uh, place. In this cyberpunk iteration of a possible future, computer technology has advanced to the point that many members of the public possess cyber brains, technology that allows them to interface their biological brains with various networks. The level of cyberization varies from simple minimal interfaces to almost complete replacement of the brain with cybernetic parts in cases of severe trauma. This can also be combined with various levels of prostheses with a fully prosthetic body enabling a person to become a cyborg. In other words, you had your brain replaced with or augmented with uh, machinery and tech, and then you had your body replaced. At this stage, only a little bit of you is still technically human. There's a Robocop feel there, but yeah. Robocop was an analog world. But specifically, and from a political perspective, as long as you as a being contain a few cells we've got a ship of theseus scenario right absolutely. here absolutely but as long as you contain a few cells of human material you qualify as a human from uh, like recognition as a citizen and entitlement to protection from the government and all of that kind of stuff you are treated as a person not a thing even if the amount of technical human meat in you is very small, but there has to be some. If there is none at all, you are not a person, you are a thing. Hmm. And that becomes very significant as the philosophy of the film unfolds. The heroine of Ghost in the Shell, Major Motoko Kusanagi, is such a cyborg, having had a terrible accident before her as a child that ultimately required that she use a full body prosthesis to house her cyber brain. I did not know that. That is not really revealed in the movie, but it makes a big difference to the overall story. That is what she... Now, I can't remember whether that is what she's told and it turns out not to be true, or that is hidden from her and turns out to be true. I think that what has just been described is being hidden from her in that first movie and comes to be the case in either standalone complex or arise. This high level of cyberization, however, opens the brain up to attacks from highly skilled hackers, with the most dangerous being those who will hack a person to bend to their whims. A person is hacked. And Ghost in the Shell contains human beings who have some cybernetic implants and are effectively being puppeteered by someone or something referred to as the puppet master. Yeah. They also distinguish between having your prosthetics hacked, 
wherein somebody accesses you and makes you physically do things like arm movements and stuff that you wouldn't choose to do. Cybernetic blood bending. And having your ghost hacked, which is where somebody actually takes over your mind. You do things that you would not have intended to do and you don't even know you didn't intend to do them. Yeah, you are effectively in the sunken place or some kind of holding pattern, unaware of what's actually going on. Yeah. There are also threads throughout this of the cyberization, whether that be your brain or your body, making you inherently dependent upon the system because you need constant maintenance, upgrades. Uh, there's, there's some exploration in one of the later films about how the upgrades can only be taken so far. So if you've, up, if you've had some kind of prosthetic or, or cyber brain put in later in life, you'll probably be okay because they, they will probably last for your lifetime. However, when it's done with children, there is going to come a point where they cannot upgrade anymore. This fusing with technology deprives people of the ability to be completely independent. And I think we can all see where that metaphor is going. Yeah. Uh, It begins with an initial hit that's actually a really memorable piece of cinema. It's something that gets referenced time and time again in the follow-ups to Ghost in the Shell. That opening shot is absolutely iconic. The major Motoko uh, talking to her team in the van, crouching on a rooftop, looking out over the, the cyberpunk city and listening in on a conversation between some shady types several floors below in this skyscraper. If I remember rightly, the person that she assassinates is trying to claim some kind of asylum. This is something that crops up a a few times in the story. Somebody wants protection, ostensibly speaking because we agree with them, we should offer it to them, but it's going to make our political position very difficult. Or politically we should offer it to them, but fundamentally that's difficult because morally we don't agree with them. The, the hit as it is... Easier to just take them out. There's a lot of very heavily armed and armoured bodyguards who run up some stairs and get ready and pull out machine pistols from their suitcases and they're all ready to get a hit. And what actually happens when the Major is just... She throws off her coat, stands completely stark bollock naked on the roof and then dives backwards off it, kind of bungee jumping. Then two men are talking downstairs about this particular political asylum... And then she mutters something about, oh, yeah, you come from uh, uh, such a fair country. And then the guy's head explodes as she goes past. The other guy runs to the window and looks out and sees her with thermoptic camouflage, which she goes, oh, like she's becoming invisible at this stage. And then she brushes a hand over her eyes and blends into the cybernetically enhanced city and is gone. Now... Let's talk about 2017 Scarlett Johansson film because they make decisions to change the fundamentals along the way. And honestly, the film isn't anywhere near that bad. It could have been fucking terrible. The Last Airbender exists as a movie. That is a total bastardization of the original, created by someone who is writer, director, producer, his name's on everything, and the whole film stands as his misinterpretation and piss poor. We're blaming you, M. Knight. E- emulation of that TV show. 
Ghost in the Shell 2017 is what if this, but Robocop. Yeah. So And I'd, The Matrix, but I'd, not the clever Matrix. <laughs> we want just the veneer <laughs> the of the The audience Matrix. of The Matrix, please. Uh, right. Well, that's what I said. All of the stuff that is philosophizing and considering of the self, all of that, the, the, the dialogue in The Matrix that just expands your mind is in Ghost in the Shell, not in such a concentration as The Matrix, but it's definitely there. Mm. 2017's Scarlet in the Shell, they avoid it at all stages. Yeah. So you want the audience of The Matrix, but you don't want to do the reading. No, indeed. So what I'd like to do with this is, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a few significant conceptual ideas that I think come across in this, just in this opening couple of minutes. If I outline that, mm -hmm. then you tell me what they change for the 2017 film, yep. and then tell me whether or not they managed to keep the spirit of that original shot as I'm perceiving it. Okay. Yeah? So the start of the scene, the Major is listening into the target, mm -hmm. she's listening into her team in the van, mm -hmm. and they also explicitly state that she has a massive amount of internal head noise going on. Yeah. Which... There is um, interference as well. There is interference which they, which they can hear, yeah. her team can hear and comment on. They actually say, I'm amazed you can hear any of this with all of that noise going on in your head. And she says, oh, it's been going on all day, it must be a loose wire. In the 2.0 version, she says, she dryly jokes, must be my time of the month and I'm like who wrote that uh, as a new way of saying must be a loose how do I find wire. you and slap you anyway I so get that like, it's, she doesn't have periods because her body is robotic yeah. But, but the point being that part of it is, is internal thoughts of her own and part of it is noise from the networks that she is plugged into and it is very difficult for her at this stage to distinguish between them all. And the puppet she master is, is speaking to her. But she doesn't recognise that as yet. But she is overwhelmed with internal noise. The moment of her dive where she throws off the coat is virtually naked and jumps backwards off the roof combined with the uh, the soundscape and the little strains of music that they have at this stage, this feels like a moment of freedom for her, mm -hmm. to me. And we will keep coming back to this. Later in the film, there is a recurring theme of Motoko in water. This is the same, but obviously she's diving through air, but it is a leap into nothing. There is nothing to catch her. She is just going down. But she has a purpose. She has a, um, a, a task to complete. And that's what she's focused on. So how does the 2017 film replicate this? And what do they lose by the things that they change? It's important to note the, the writer of the original uh, book, Masamune Shiro, is a bit of a dirty old man. He's kind of a... a Hideo Kojima uh, creating uh, quiet and going, oh, she has to breathe through her skin, which is why she's in a bikini as a sniper rolling around there all those sharp are rocks. so many cyborg nipples in this film. <laughs> Why'd they put that? The you nipples? just don't need. Very specifically, she has a cyborg Barbie flat area at crotch level. Yep. But also very pink, definitely human-looking nipples. Yep. And that's like... 
Well, we're not actually allowed to show the Lower Venusian furrowed plow in anime in 1994, at least not that kind of anime, but we are allowed to show nipples, so let's do that She's then. not a fuck robot, she doesn't need the stuff below the waist. And the boobs? It's... Odd. It's genuinely <laughs> odd to see a woman. It's a weird choice. A woman in this film who is really assertive and determined and self-possessed and doesn't have a fiery temper, but she's very practical and logical and pragmatic about everything mm. and is indifferent to her own body, be objectified in this way. I will say, actually, having said all that, there is one narrative element in which it does become significant and that is in how Batu treats her yeah I've got a whole section on how Batu is an excellent supporter yeah yeah, she reminds me a little of Oberon. Mm, yes. Like the big guy who's also very gentle. Yeah. And Willow picked up on that, especially in the sequel, where he has this basset hound you know, he's taking care of and, and just has these big sad eyes. And it's just a big thing that looks scary, taking care of a little thing that's soft and vulnerable, and Willow just warms to that immediately. Now, the original writer, um, Masamune Shiro, even his fans will say that his manga's descended into hentai by the uh, the later sta- stages. It's it's just like machines fucking women. So this is not like well, let's give him the benefit of the doubt because he was already on this path. So it's it's part and parcel of Ghost in the Shell is the objectification of the major. I suppose what is appealing is that she considers her body with disdain rather than intimacy. Scarlett Johansson sort of manages to do that without really being objectified. The skin suit she's wearing is always coloured to look like it's 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 light it's white suit. rubber, yeah. and she is sort of, she's naked but not really naked. Yeah. She wears two suits in the film, and there's there's actually this was what really made me think ah they have made it very very clear that this is a suit this is not her yeah she wears the this kind of shimmery sometimes gray sometimes slightly opalescent uh suit which is the camouflage one Mm -hmm. and then she wears a suit which is virtually identical except for the fact that it's blue and that is her diving wetsuit Mm -hmm. when she takes that diving wetsuit off we actually see her, the back of her neck and her spine as she unzips the suit. And underneath, that is skin. That mm. is not the pearlescent suit that she has at the beginning. Yeah. So that, to me, suggests that they were really trying to pin their colours to the mast in terms of, yes, she's wearing clothes. It just looks like mm. she's naked. And Johansson, to her credit... Watch her walk and move in this film. I I asked you both to do that. The difference between the Major and Natasha Romanoff, they are effectively both the same kind of character. Someone who has been trained for a very, very long time to be a killer for liars and murderers uh, in the service of liars and murderers. And Natasha has a fluidity about the way she moves, whereas Motoko moves a little bit like a tank, an yeah. elegant, swift tank. But yeah. Scarlet hunches her shoulders and, she and, and positions. She, she's very forward-facing and then rotates, almost like Resident Evil original tank controls. Yeah. And the way she wears the bomber jacket, because this is how bomber jackets sit on actual human people, rather Square than shoulders. Be the way that they're drawn, um, it envelops her and becomes part mm. of her bulk. However, the hit in the original animated one takes a second 
and a half of Mutako flying past the window and uh, performing a coup de grace on this guy's head, which explodes like a fucking watermelon. In the live-action one, they have to go further. So she bursts through the window like that guy in Wanted, which is Trinity bursting backwards through the window in uh, Matrix Reloaded, and then runs sideways up the wall, shooting all the dudes in the room, and then gets into an altercation with a geisha bot. She's much more hands-on. They make it into a full sequence to try to wow American audiences and remind them of the Matrix. So it's like a snake eating its own ass. The original anime inspired the Matrix, which inspired them to make a live-action version of the original anime. Yeah. And would you agree with me that that means that they lose that sense of freedom in her at the beginning and that by launching herself into the room mm. and getting much more involved It with becomes it, a badass you, moment. You lose that sense of, and like a ghost, she's gone. She's gone. Yeah, no, she's... Uh, uh, <clears throat> honestly, it's not a million miles off of the opening for Deadpool 2. <laughs> Yeah, it's just that her skin suit is pink instead of red. He's hacking up a bunch of Yakuza and she's shooting up a bunch of cyborgs. It's a right palaver. But they extend it. And also, they save that disappearing backwards into the city and going invisible for the very final shot of the film to go, ah, see, we did it. And we are the onlooker there. No one's looking at her disappear. Like, she's doing that for us. It's... Almost like it was a contractual obligation, but at the same time, they, they had to just put that in there. Mm -hmm. Then we get the intro sequence, which is one of the most hypnotic for any anime film that I've seen. It has this music, which is has got one foot in ancient Japanese Kodo drums tradition and one foot in the far future and Tales of the Future, the Vangelis Blade Runner soundtrack of... Oh, is that the lyrics? That's the lyrics. Oh, could you read them, please? Okay. Because I had danced, the beautiful lady was enchanted. Because I had danced, the shining moon echoed. Proposing marriage, the god shall descend. The night clears away and the chimera bird will sing. Wow. And effectively, the sequence is Motoko being created or recreated or upgraded. Yeah, it's It's, it's never spoken aloud what's at happening. At what point in her existence this is... Um, but the the combination it alternates between her cyborg body being constructed and her mental data being encoded. This is where the, the green lines of text come in, which artistically they it starts with matrix style numbers and then uh, coalesces into, into the wording, credits of yeah. the of the film. Um, but it's it's showing her coming into being, and this. This is this is where the the her being submerged in water and coming to the surface. This it's incredibly uterine for a start. Absolutely, it's she is being born, regardless of whether this is something that's happened many times or if this is the first and everything before this she's been lied to about. Well, my guess is that uh, unless this is a sequence that doesn't is no longer canonical to the one where she 
had to have her entire body replaced as a child, mm. this is an upgrade. This is a replacement body. And they do actually say, because again, this is something that they come back to in the new movie, uh, <coughs> like I said, the, the upgrade of children is really difficult because they're, they're, I suppose, I don't know, their contracts do not include them being designed to be capable of upgrades, but she was. The creator of uh, Kusanagi designed her with upgrade, eternal upgrade in mind. Her, his name was Motoko Kusanagi. Yeah, or hers. <clears throat> I believe we get the gender of her creator confirmed. Didn't she open that giant coffin at one point? Oh, maybe. I might have missed that bit. Okay. Um, I got a very uh, Dr. Halsey and Cortana feel yeah. from that. It's, I think I may be getting it confused with Julia Binoche, who is her handler in got 2017. Got it. In the tw- that's a new um, addition. But the, this... this um, theme of her being underwater like i said it comes back over and over again she participates in free diving even though for her body that's not really a a natural activity to get involved in she doesn't have the flotation that a human body would have Um, but she talks to batu about the the process of coming up from the depths gives her hope because she feels like as she surfaces she could come out as somebody else that is literal rebirth um the this kind of life before life or life between lives for her this moment of being completely subsumed in in what surrounds her and they use water and reflections in water as a way to um to kind of outline her in negative space. It becomes about what she is surrounded by rather than her as an individual. And I was automatically reminded of the, which I've got up on screen now showing you, the Chris Cunningham video for Bjork's All Is Full of Love, which was from 1997, so clearly was inspired by this film. It, she's a robot singing to herself as she is created in the factory. But yeah, the uh, the ScarJo version of the uh, this sequence is similar. They've definitely taken their cues from it. The music is far more muted. They put they put a little bit of the chanting in the very underside, almost as a sort of a, a, a Easter egg for the fans who they know are in the minority in the audience. They want to hit the mainstream with this film. Indeed. The other element of this intro sequence that really juxtaposes this dichotomy between the the wateriness and physicality of the human form with the electricity and uh, airiness of uh, the mental information that's going in mm. is echoed in the conversations that they later have about the the concept of the ghost and how that is formed the the soul is effectively what they're talking about and it is neither the meat body nor the cybernetic elements of the brain it is not something that has a physical capacity that you can touch it's almost like it's the electrical impulses that flow between the two which we cannot make into something physical it is ephemeral by its very nature and that's why they call it a ghost after this intro sequence we are brought up to date regarding the fact that this puppet master is hacking into the brain of a blonde lady and uh, they're trying to work out what the hell's how the how the hell to isolate this thing and to find this guy he's the public enemy number one so we know the kind of the chase is on at this stage do they initially think she's a human that, that the puppet master has overtaken 
I think she's definitely got a cybernetic body. It's oh, not she, yeah, the no, no, same no. as is, the woman near the end. It is discovered to be a completely cybernetic, uh, completely, completely cyborg form. I'm just wondering at what point they realise this. Not that it necessarily matters. Following a request from Nakamura, Chief of Section 6, she successfully assassinates a diplomat of a foreign country to prevent a programmer named Daita from defecting. The foreign minister's interpreter is ghost-hacked, that's the blonde lady at the beginning, not to be confused with the blonde lady at the end, presumably to assassinate VIPs in an upcoming meeting. Believing the perpetrator to be the mysterious puppet master, Kusanagi's team follows the trace telephone calls that sent the virus. After a chase, they capture the garbage man. Now, the garbage truck sequence is one of the centerpieces of the film. And I noticed this time, uh, while I was watching the live-action one, there was a sort of a thumping, pounding... It, the, 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 the garbage truck scene in that becomes a hit. They're trying to kill Juliette Binoche's character mm. because she's... Because, because she's important to Motoko. Right. That is the reason. Uh, so she's not even Motoko <clears throat> in that issue. She's Mira. The, there is no real other reason for them to be doing that at this point. Uh, she's encouraging her in all the wrong directions. Mm. 2017's American version, they make it Robocop insofar as Scarlett Johansson was previously a Japanese girl. Mm. Mm. I was saying all the way up to the point where this film got made, this should be Marco Mori from uh, Pacific Rim, Rinko Kikuchi playing the major. I kept saying it over and over again. The film didn't do fantastically well. But here's the thing. If it had not done fantastically well, but starred Rinko Kikuchi and just been this film, it would have been better. But instead, the idea is she was a Japanese girl. She had a mother who lives nearby and actually features in the uh, film. And at some point, something terrible happened, she was kidnapped, and her brain was put into this cyborg body of a Caucasian lady. And now she's the major. I don't get why they needed a girl. Because this whole thing is, this is about what the fucking Weapon X people did to me, and there's one dude, a bad apple dude, who's like in charge of this whole plot, and he wants supreme power and super soldiers, and they made him up for, for the American film, and the whole thing is about he fucked over the puppet master and he fucked over the major and, and if you kill him things will be all right it's not systemic it's a bad apple yeah it's it's not an, and they're cops it's not a narrative term that i particularly enjoy their reasons for doing it are structural not thematic and they are moving away from the exploration of what to me are the important philosophical elements of the story which are about personifications of network, um, the, the idea that something can come out of nothing, they are almost literally saying, no it can't, this is a brain that was put in a body, and by the way we're doing it as justification for why we didn't cast a Japanese actress. It just, the whole thing feels like, well if you're gonna do that, why the fuck are you bothering in the first place? Yeah. So, it be, it, like I said, it becomes Robocop. <coughs> it's, it's, the whole thing is, who am I? Which is a good question for Motoko to be pondering in the film. It's fine, but it's who am I? Oh, that's who I am. The end. That's the thing. For an American audience, it was reformatted to who am I? There is an answer to this mystery, and it's Robocop. As opposed to the major, throughout the original film, pondering her own existence and pondering where the machine begins and the human ends if there is a human in there and what is she a collection of memories and experiences what is a man but nothing but a, she's miserable a miserable pile little pile of, of secrets, of secrets. <laughs> whereas 
seemingly for the Americas, they had to reformat it into this is something that gets done to you, and wouldn't you want revenge and to be able to claim your independence and life back? Which is not a terrible story. No, it's not. It's just not this story. I feel like they could actually have done both, though. She finds out that she was a human, and she finds out she had a mother, and it doesn't matter all that much because she then asks herself, okay, but what am I now? And then you still get that. You can have your cake and eat it. I will grant them that there is a tiny hint of that at the end. A little bit. The conclusion of the original story is... It's not her squeezing herself into a desk in a Japanese school and going, right, the lessons I missed. Yeah. The... Who's the Caucasian girl? <laughs> <laughs> the very end of the original story, there is a... a a discussion of the combination of A and B creates something different. Yeah. I am not this, but I am also not that anymore. I now get to choose what that blend becomes. It is a little bit and still is, oversimplified for Americans. You is. decide your destiny. It is. But they do at least, there is the, the barest of nods towards that in the sense that she acknowledges that although it's, it's just it's really confused because it's it's not her definitively breaking away the fact that she makes the the very firm point to her mother air quotes that she does not need to go to the grave anymore because her daughter is not there but then she walks away going and now I am something completely different she has stripped that woman of her ability to mourn the daughter that one way or another she has lost no grieving for you moms <laughs> yeah I'm off I'm not Montico, your child, but you can't have that grave anymore. I don't know, how about I come around on Sunday for tea? <laughs> anyway, yeah. so the the truck sequence is a centerpiece for both. In uh, the live action one, it's a hit. In the animated original, it is a a, a pair of shady guys. One of whom is a uh, is one of the two garbage truck drivers. They they narrow it down to just. A garbage truck driver. They don't have the third party in the live-action one. Mm. The other of whom is an unspeaking uh, third guy, and they are going from garbage stop to garbage stop. And this guy keeps stopping and checking in with computer systems along the way. Ostensibly, is it he's spying on his ex-wife? I'm not entirely sure. I thought initially he he says he's spying on his ex-wife, and this guy that he met in the bar has given him the, the Spy, how right? to do yeah. that. Um, so what he does is he stops at various phones along his route and uh, makes a call whereby he puts the hack into the phone line. Yeah. I thought that initially the idea was he was following on the guy who was actually planting the virus in order to cover his tracks. However, given what is then revealed to him about who he is and, and how where he's, he's been, been manipulated, yeah. it's entirely possible he is just planting the virus and he doesn't know. Yeah. Uh, this is the puppet master manipulating at least two human men into uh, performing actions for him physically throughout the city. Yeah. The puppet master doesn't have a body, he has to act through these marionettes. Yeah. And it's a spectacular shootout, but one of the things I really appreciate, and they managed to do this in the live-action one as well, so well done for at least doing the bare minimum on this. The original score is by Kenji Kawai. 
And the score for the uh, 2017 one is uh, Clint Mansell, who did um, Requiem for a Dream, and Lorne Balfe. <laughs> Terminator Genesis. Yeah. This was better than Terminator Genesis. Lego Batman movie. Ugh. Pacific Rim Uprising. Mission Impossible Fallout. Gemini Man. Ugh. Bad Boys for Life. The Tomorrow War. Black Widow. Ah, he's good at scoring Scarlett Johansson. The point is, this sequel... Oh, Top, Top Gun Maverick. He did really, really well there. Black Adam. Eh, <laughs> he goes ups and downs. Honor Among Thieves. Dead Reckoning. But specifically, this could have been a... Like Matrix style, you know, big action sequence, chasing through alleys. Both films pull out that score. And it's quiet and thought-provoking and lonely and sparing. And it emphasizes the isolation of both cat and mouse. Mm. And it's really well done insofar as it, it, in the original film and then copied for the uh, 2017 one. It's, it's like they acknowledged, okay, that's really good. We don't need to elaborate on that. Yeah. It's also worth noting that the original Ghost in the Shell animated film in 1994 only made $10 million at the box office. So there is actually something to be said for make it in live action so that general audiences can take in this story. Mm. Which is then why it's so frustrating that they changed the story. Yeah. But you've also got to still cater for those people. I feel like so many films treat Americans like they're adorable morons and that they can't get deeper concepts. And that's not true. In, I mean, Inception does spend most of its runtime explaining itself, but you can definitely keep up with it. And large audiences were like, I am totally here for this film. Tenet, again, I think would have done a lot better without the pandemic, but. As long as it's the right person, they'll pay attention. I think what we're seeing here is the fact that there are certain studio movie executives who don't understand certain concepts. Right. They're the adorable morons. They're the ones who have to have things dumbed down and explained for them. And unfortunately, because it's about 12 guys who've got their fingers in all the pies, this is the way it comes out. Co-written the uh, live-action remake by Jamie Moss, whose uh, credits include X-Men First Class, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Uncredited. Those are pretty good films, and so I would imagine he, he got some good stuff into this one. His partner, Aaron Kruger. Everybody's favourite credit star. The man I wish would stop <laughs> writing movies. Scream 3, Reindeer Games, The Ring, Rings, The Ring 2, The Skeleton Key, The Brothers Grimm. Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, Transformers Dark of the Moon, Transformers Age of Extinction, Dumbo, and Top Gun Maverick. Everybody gets one. But again, co-wrote with Eric Warren Singer and Chris McQuarrie. He does a lot of co-writing, does Aaron Kruger, which kind of makes me feel like he just gets his name pinned to things. Chris McQuarrie, by the way, uh, his whole life, uh, another man has been taking credit for his work. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Parts 1 and 2, Top Gun Maverick, uh, he, he, he directed and wrote those two Mission Impossibles, and uh, also Mission Impossible Fallout, and also Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, the fifth one, which is also really good. <laughs> he also wrote the 2017 The Tom Cruise Mummy film, also wrote Edge of Tomorrow. Is he just Tom Cruise's favourite? Honestly, I feel like Tom Cruise is like, I can trust you, Chris McQuarrie. But look at this film from 1995, The Usual Suspects. Now, we have seen Chris McQuarrie be a fantastic writer and director. We saw Brian Singer come away from The Usual Suspects, his debut, which everyone thought was great, and do nothing but mediocrity with the rest of his career. 
I'm going to go ahead and say The Usual Suspects is credited to Chris McQuarrie and Brian Singer was just there and he farted. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, right, just to go back to this sequence with the garbage truck, the there is a juxtaposition of the quietness and the emptiness of the city here, with which sits against some quite intense sequences of world building where you, you there are no people for us to focus on exactly. There's crowds, but we're not following any particular individual we're just touring around the city we're seeing it washed in rain it's very Blade Runner there's a heartbeat going on there there's a breathe in breathe out there's an empty city where everybody is inside doing their work or whatever it is they do during the day and then there is a everybody out in the streets walking around um, commuting shopping whatever they do outside of that time and there's hints of this in, in Motoko's life as well. You see the, the opening shot of her when she wakes up in her apartment. The, the bed is empty. The apartment is empty. The doorway is empty. All we see is the window and the cityscape and, and how that's framed. The people in this city are less individuals than they are the blood of the city itself. And they beat in and beat out as the city requires, not as they as individuals require. The city is an organism. Yeah. Right. And that is, again, referred to in later movies where the, it's I think it's in Innocence, they discuss this idea of the... I mean, they talk in this about the genes being how human meat passes down its memory. And they mention, or they discuss the idea of a city being... A memory stick, effectively, a, a hard drive in which it can contain these genetic memories of all these people. Wow. Okay. As it turns out, the uh, the two men, or one man in the uh, extended uh, the uh, American version, uh, have been hacked by the puppet master. And very specifically, they have implanted memories. This is something from Blade Runner, where uh, he, he cha Deckard challenges Rachel with the things that she believes to be true and memories of herself as a child, and he destroys her whole world. In the American version, Motoko is very aggressive with this poor garbage man stuck in a cell, chained up, who eventually, by the way, kills himself in the cell, or the puppet master does it, but in a very dramatic way, as opposed to the animated film, where it's we just kind of dwell on these men's blank, despairing faces as they kind of ponder who they are. And there's just, uh, in, in the case of the guy who never really speaks that much, the cops are actually quite gentle with both of them in terms of this is the reality of your life. You've been living in an apartment on your own for all these years. You don't have a wife and a child. And he looks at the... The garbage man looks at the photo that he has been showing to his friend, who obviously wasn't looking, and it's just him in all these. And... With the dog in the background. There's a sense that these men have been robbed of their lives by the puppet master being just exceptionally cruel and using them as, as meat bags. But it also casts a question mark over 
Kusanagi's memories of herself. Yeah. Because if these memories were manipulations in order to get them to do the things that the puppet master wanted them to do, yeah. what does that say about how she's formed a, a, an idea of who she is based on who she believes she's been? Which is why this is such a wasted scene in the uh, live-action one, because she should be pondering what's being said to them just silently while someone else is saying it all and then turns around and walks away and then comes back and talks to them angrily in a kind of trying to work out what they have in common with her mm. so that if she can maybe zero in on something about herself that she's always felt uncertain about that can then inform upon the diving scene when she's down alone floating thinking about who she is absolutely there is there is a shade of that idea of of it being a way to connect in when she meets the puppet master in the live action film but because it's been changed played by cupid bowmouthed michael pitt who again has been he's just another he's the previously run uh, version of motoko so he's been completely screwed over by the system he has nowhere near the breadth of plan of Absolutely the puppet not. master. The, the, he just the, wants revenge on the one bad apple. What they they do connect in the live action. His name film, is Kuzi. But it's over the fact that they are both stolen children. In yeah. fact, effectively, she is relating to him as a sibling, yeah. not as something that brings wider concepts about who she is and and how she interacts with the world. Elements of this were handled better in the uh, Alita Battle Angel film. Uh, yes. Yeah. Let's talk about Batau here. I originally thought he was just a robot because he is very kind of Terminator severe the whole time in the uh, animated original. He's very softly spoken. He's huge and muscular and has these blank eyes that are kind of, they've, they've got these lenses on them that make him look almost like a Mignola character who just has these, like if you occlude the lenses and you shut away the pupils, you take away the humanity of that guy. So Batau has to work double time to show that there is actually a guy under this. Mm. And he has cybernetic implants, but he is not simply a cyborg. And those get abused and exploited in the second one where he start, he suddenly gets a terrible feeling that he's being attacked in a grocery store and he engages in a firefight and almost kills the shopkeeper only to realize he was the one freaking out and shooting bullets all over the place and had been body jacked effectively and has to be brought down from that. Yeah. Pilau Azbek does an okay job as Batau in the live action film. Although Willow did comment and I don't even know what this means. That's not a cyborg, that's an Australian. I didn't realise those two were opposites. He's Danish, he was born in Copenhagen. Batu is like a, a midpoint between Kusanagi, who is primarily cyborg, with human elements to her brain, mm. and Mullet, whose name I can never remember, is it Tasco? Togusa. Togusa is almost entirely human. I believe he has some tiny cybernetic alterations, but, but nothing to speak of. He is majority human. And Motoko actually says at one point that, that part of the reason for this is that she wants a team that is composed of people with different perspectives, people with different ways of looking and interacting with the world, because if, the, if all of them were like her, then the team would only be able to react to things in one way. And she's talking about this idea that if, if all you do is clone, if all you do is replicate the same thing over and over again, you end up with structural weakness. Because nobody, Batman aside, nobody can be good at everything. 
I'm being sarcastic. I don't really believe that. Um, but Some people <laughs> can be good at everything. <laughs> but what she needs is uh, a team of people who can give her options when it comes to how they're going to respond to different situations. There is definite validity to having a far more analogue person on this squad. It means he's far less vulnerable. Absolutely. and that Even though again, Batal teases him about this Mateva uh, yeah. gun he keeps talking about, which is clearly <laughs> ancient. Absolutely. But, ends up but with it a, does end up becoming useful. Um, also, the, he's one of the few people in the live-action movie who's allowed to be Japanese. Oh, him he doesn't have and, the mullet, though, does he? No, they, they <laughs> dart back on that. They had to take away the mullet. But um, they also have the, the legendary Takashi Katano as the director of, uh, of their squad. Mm. He, he's very sort of understated and very kind of like hands-off overseer and gets to shoot the bad apple in the chest to illustrate that the old guard can take care of these young upstarts who try to take too much from the system for themselves. Is he effectively playing the guy who in the uh, the original is looks like the little dude from Wicked City with the, the white hair and the... Grumpy Uncle Ira. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so Batu is like a, a midpoint then between Tagusa, who is almost entirely human, and... Uh, Kusanagi, who is almost entirely cybernetic, and he's... His name is Chief Aramaki. Yeah. In the animated version, there's a lot of prosthetics involved in in his body, um, and he has a degree of of cybernetic implant as well. They dial that back a lot in the live action. He only has a prosthetic arm, and then later in the film he gets the eye implants, but he is mostly human. They use him in the film as the human element to try and pull... Motoko back towards humanity and because to Tugusa's not get... barely in it. Yeah, that's supposed to be what he does. Well, they didn't have room for two men, which is fine. <laughs> At least they mean if you're going to put a woman to the front, you can definitely not have two men. Or to look at it another way, well, we cast somebody Japanese. You're going to give him anything to do? Oh, oh heavens, heavens, no. Uh, is Chin Han Japanese? No, no he's, he's Singaporean. <laughs> okay. Uh, he was the he was Lao in the Dark Knight, you know. Oh, I know okay. Squealers and Pointy Finger. Mm. Oh, he was also uh, Councilman Yen in the Winter Soldier. Yeah. Oh, he was Shang Tsung in Mortal Kombat. He's rubbish in that okay. new one. So this tells you how little he gets to do in the 2017 film. I didn't even remember he was in it. Yep. If I'd seen him, I'd have recognised. You needed him. to be rocking that mullet. He did. Willow was like, I've never seen an anime character with a mullet. I'm like, that's because we've not shown you enough <laughs> 80s anime. And yeah. there is a reason for that. We legally can't until you're 18. They didn't just make hentai in the 80s. Oh, come on. You're going to sit down Willow in front of Wicked City? No. (laughs) I think we showed them Ninja Scroll, but had to fast forward through the gross bits. A select edit of Ninja Scroll. Good God. Anyway. For me, the standout sequence, even over and above that creation sequence and the hit at the beginning, is this middle point that you already talked about with uh, the city in the rain. Motoko is just standing on a barge going through the city slowly and quietly while that hypnotic music plays again, and she's just looking around the place. This is after the diving sequence, so she is trying to work out her place in this city. And there is a really crucial moment when she looks up into a building and a woman who looks exactly like her 
is sat at a table either working or dining and turns a little bit to look at her, doesn't have the holes in the back of the neck. And then later on, she sees a mannequin in a, uh, a fashion window that also looks like her. And then we reposition on what appears to be Kusanagi's face, but it's the mannequin's face staring blankly out of the window. This sequence is not in the 2017 remake because American audiences would probably be uncomfortable with the not speaking and the staring at things. Mm. Do you know what it reminded me of, though? Was probably their assumption. And probably because Aaron Kruger always skips past this sequence. Yeah. Motherfucker. Where, where I think we do see this come out is in um, Never Let Me Go. Yeah. When Scott, uh, Kira Knightley, Kira Knightley yeah. thinks she's seen her original hmm. in a cafe. Yeah. And becomes obsessed with her. But I love how it goes from sort of this bleak daytime to an almost more welcoming, rainy, neon night as the city becomes alive after... It's, it's almost in limbo in the daytime, mm. just waiting to become itself. I love this sequence. <clears throat> Let's mention the 2.0 version. You didn't see this recently. What they've done is take the original zoomed in a bit I noticed a lot of the shots were reframed so we get it larger and then they threw various filters over it to make it not green but golden and then thus if you've ever played any of the more recent Deus Ex games like Human Revolution or Deus Ex Mankind Divided they see the world through this golden haze where the information packets are less cold and more almost like dust from Philip Pullman's uh, His Dark Materials. It's almost like this is the way of the world now. The data moves around in streams. We are merely witnessing it and most people can't see this data. But in Ghost in the Shell, Moto we're looking through Motoko's eyes so all of this gold is absolutely coming out. Having everything green, when they remastered it in 2008, it was nine years after The Matrix and they made a conscious decision to not go green, to mute all of that green. To a degree, I really like it because it's more welcoming. But then when I watched the most recent actually remastered rather than... Re I can't really call it remastered. It's a reskin. Now, after seeing the actual 4K remaster of the 95 one, version 2.0 does have the 1995 original after a fashion as a extra, a bonus on the Blu-ray where you can watch the DVD version in standard def and it looks like crap compared to this new one. I would honestly, if you like the film, track down both and watch one, then watch the other, and then envy me for being able to get hold of a... well, be able to construct my own version that eliminates the crappy 2008 CG. The bit where she stands up, throws off her coat to, uh, to, to jump down into the... It's 2008. She looks like a fucking PlayStation 2 character. Maybe even a PlayStation 1 character. It is horrible. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I watch... Uh, the the 2.0 version a lot of it is just replacing the very green basic 90 cg and, and the the moving around the city overhead helicopter view but within a computer sequences mm. and those i'm fine with and like a sort of a, a, a rotating brain i did paste a remastered original over the helicopter sequences because they took out the hand-drawn versions and put in a 2008 cg helicopter that looks terrible but the original remastered recently released in 4K, which I watched, but you can't watch on Xbox One because some 4K discs will not work on Xbox One 
the 4K disc player. It is fucking mind-boggling. So I don't know if I buy the film whether it will work. I bought the Hellboy animated uh, 4K set from America, thanks to Greg. It was never released over here. The Blu-ray is region locked to A, but 4K discs are region free. So you would think, just put it in my Xbox One and it'll play. But it was one of these new encoded discs that the Xbox One just has trouble accessing. My guess is that the 4K reader in the Xbox is not intended to be particularly fantastic and so simpler discs it can read anything that's very complicated you're going to need a standalone i've had problems player. for years remember we had to return two copies of the back to the future uh, 4k box yeah. set <sighs> the format is treacherous to me and those of you who have a dedicated standalone 4k player well done good good for you and especially if it's a multi-region blu-ray playing 4k player you are one percent of one percent of people the matrix 3 has a gold tone to it to certain elements yeah. of it rather than green when neo starts to see the machines as being like him yeah. as opposed to us and them yeah it's like green is them is the machine code Blue is the real world. Gold, somehow? I don't think that works in terms of colour blending, but gold is the, the synthesis of the two. Mm. Around about this time, the Puppet Master is discovered as a, uh, a blonde woman who was not the blonde woman at the beginning, who gets hit by a car and it has a cybernetic brain and has... It's... She's got her tits out, but her arms have been ripped off and so is her, le okay. her, her so legs. Okay, so this is a... Um, this body is a cyborg body that was constructed in a cyborg factory but not not in the usual manufacturing process somebody hacked the factory while it was closed mm. and used it to assemble a body that it had designed itself right. and they are initially looking for who is the individual who has hacked into this factory in order to do this Probably and eventually the conclusion that they come to is it was done by the puppet the, master, the puppet master who as we said before lacks a body and they're, they're trying to work out why the puppet master who is coded male most of the time lacks a body then this cyborg woman starts speaking and saying you think i'm an ai but i am beyond an AI. I was born in a sea of information, yeah. which is why I love the fact that you called it an entity. In Mission Impossible 7, Dead Reckoning, the big bad is this, and it's called the entity, and Ethan Hunt and company are terrified that this supremely powerful AI god will fall into the hands of the wrong people. And I can understand why the Puppet Master says that he's not an AI. An, an artificial intelligence is something that has been created by humans. Mm. He comes from within the network. He became self-aware. He was a a varying set Skynet. of programs doing different things yeah. but then came to the conclusion that as a as an entity as a a, a, a being that has knowledge of of itself bioorganically grown yeah he is he is something completely different and the this body that he's made for himself likewise is not although humans have put together the factory that has made him able to manufacture it it was not designed there are there are elements of the code and the design of the, the body that are not 
human planned. So one assumes that the reason he's had to go for a female coded body is because one of the easiest factories to hack is going to be something that makes sex robots and these are the parts they have littered around. Again, there's there's a moment when they, they replicate the... Um, replicate yes replicate Robocop came first uh, the Robocop wake, waking up scene mm. and uh, the, the sort of it in the scene. animated version or the live action version oh god no I can't even remember think the animated well, version? No, it's got to be the animated version because they barely talk about who the puppet master or what go. the puppet master so, is. It's just Michael Pitt, <laughs> the previous Weapon X. Yeah, so you you get the the, uh, the puppet master kind of looking at these, these arms that are shredded and looking down at himself and the people talking around him about him, mm. not recognising that he is returning to consciousness. Um, and there's a moment where we then go into... Her, his, theirs, their mind. The entities. The entities' mind. And you start off with, again, a page of green numeric code that then swirls into a fingerprint. Those lines follow, and, and a fingerprint ultimately is, is its data. It's entirely unique. It is created by the water that flows around you while your body is forming and that is entirely unique to every individual because it's not about the DNA plan and it's not about the things that have happened to you and been programmed into you it's about just something in your environment that is is entirely a combination of a b and c everything mixing together and there's a the the Modus operandi of Act 3 is that the Puppet Master gets, there's a break-in, gets snatched out from under the noses of the Chiefs where they're trying to work out what to do with him, and his body is ferried across the city. The Puppet Master is stuck inside this thing, can't beam out of it. Yeah, the the people who are trying to destroy him, who kind of know what he is but not really and are terrified of that fact, claim that he is a person who went into the network and then they got him into this cyborg body on purpose uh, so that he was isolated and then murdered his original body so that he didn't have anywhere to go. Or, or vice versa. They got him in, he was in the network, they killed his original body and then he, he had to find his own way of getting out of it. But that is a lie. That original body never existed. And I uh, always uh, felt like this film, which at an hour and 22 minutes is blissfully whip-quick, Uh, felt a little bit too short. You know that thing about no good film is too long, no bad film is too short. Mm. The Last Airbender is one of the worst films I've ever seen. It's also too short. Ghost in the Shell is one of the best animes I've ever seen. It's also too short. So I would like to refute that statement made originally, I think, uh, pithily by uh, the great Roger Ebert. There are definitely exceptions. Most definitely. John Wick 4 is an exceptionally good film that is too long by 45 minutes to an hour. But it seems like if you're only looking at what's actually happening, that Motoko goes hunting for the this severed torso of a, uh, a woman with the puppet master inside to try to destroy him, to try to destroy it. And ends up, uh, it's it's guarded by a giant spider tank that's also using thermoptic camouflage. So it becomes a case of Batao shouting at her over the radio, your gun will not 
pierce this thing's hide. You are going to kill yourself trying to destroy this thing. And she won't listen. And there's a lengthy sequence where the tank is firing at her. There's a wonderful moment. I don't know what this mural on the wall is, but the tank makes mincemeat out of the concrete in a way that the Wachowskis were like, let's use that for the lobby sequence. Um, going across fossilized plesiosaur uh, that is inset in the wall. I don't know if it's simply a relief of a plesiosaur or it's the actual frickin' bones of this thing that were discovered there, but it's destroying ancient history in order to, this newfangled tech being controlled by the puppet master. Mm. But uh, if that is an actual fossil mm. in the, the ground underneath the city, that it's not just destroying ancient history, it's destroying its own foundations. Indeed. And then the bullet train goes up through this giant it looks like a sort of a family tree descending thing. Again, it's historical and it means something and it's, it's just there's this carnage just carved through it. It's, it's symbolic, the, the family tree in particular is symbolic of what uh, Motoko was talking about with regards Record, to recorded diversity yeah. and you need these branches because if all you have is the trunk then it just falls over. Then another major divergence between live action and regular, but so small, it's major, but most people wouldn't notice it. Technically speaking, everything in this is major. Very good. Uh, <laughs> in both versions, Motoko uses her thermoptic camouflage to leap on top of the tank and start pulling at a internal unit that's driving this thing, a, a motivator. She's just trying to rip this thing out and she destroys her body in the process of attempting this and falls to the ground in the animated version, ruined. Her arms have been ripped off in the attempt. In the 2017 live action version, she succeeds because it would appear American audiences need to see something gotten in exchange for that sacrifice. It wasn't just wasted energy and, and, and ruination of herself. She managed to stop the tank by doing that, it which also, is a crucial distinction. It is. It, it, and also this sequence then follows on to her plugging into the Puppet Master and giving him access to speak through her because it's his own body is wrecked. Um, and uh, Batu wants to know why like he's he is confused by the fact that she really should be going back to get repaired at this point mm. why does she want to press on with her original plan and and um allow the the puppet master to to get to her but the bottom line is that she is like you said before she views her body as a tool the tool is broken why on earth would she not continue to use the tool that she still has which is her brain indeed and uh, again in the live action one michael pitt's kuze is picked up by the tank by the face which is in the same way that motoko is picked yeah. up by the tank by the face and, and they do that to him instead of from. to uh, scarlett johansson and uh, it ruins him, so she ends up kind of lying beside him, but then that's it. It's just kind of, look what th they have done to us. Yeah. I think it's not made abundantly clear, but the tank is there protecting the body, but it's not actually controlled by the Puppet Master. No. It's controlled by the enemies of the Puppet Master. Yeah. Um, the Also, this scene where, in, uh, where the Major and 
the Puppet Master are lying beside each other. This was the one I was referring to where having the nipples present actually becomes narratively relevant, or at least characteristically relevant. Batu has always been extremely respectful of the Major's body, even though she isn't. And like you said, she does not treat her physicality as, as a source of, of any kind of intimacy. He does, and he will avert his eyes when she changes or, um, you know, treat her like he would any other woman with... with body parts that they are revealing and he is, you know, acknowledging that it's not his place to look. He puts his he coat puts over puts his her. coat over her and he's done this before. He's put his coat around her after she's done um, assassination jobs. Yeah. And, um, but he covers her chest up. He does not cover the body puppet of master. the puppet master, yeah. which suggests that he's seeing that as a thing, but he is not seeing Motoko as a thing. He is seeing the individuality of her, even as she is seeing herself and the puppet master as the same. The irony being, Motoko jumps across and is inside the body that he did not cover up. Yes. They switch places. But he doesn't know that until they start yeah. talking. <laughs> he could just, okay, I'll just throw a sleeve across the nipples. <laughs> he knows, he can tell because the puppet master is speaking through Motoko's mouth that the puppet master is in her. Mm. He doesn't know that she's gone over to the other body. All he knows is she can't speak out loud. Like I said, I think I was judging this against Akira and it felt like there was a, a measure of epic missing from from the finale, but now that I've seen it repeatedly and specifically seen the American version, it's not about big epic things. The actual conclusion is all in the mind, and even though it feels like it's it's a it's a very lean film, a lot happens in this last few moments. Mm, yeah, and there is so much of it that is. I know we we've talked in the past, and and everybody talks about this all the time. When you're making a film, show don't tell, don't do exposition. But there is so much uh, psychological and philosophical debate in this. Uh, that, that extends into, and this was where it became really intriguing to see that the, the follow-on movies, because like, Ghost in the Shell Innocence is very similar. It's a lot of talking, it's a lot of discussion about the philosophical concepts. Uh, the new movie combines both, but it is very distinct. Now we have a talky bit, now we have an action bit, now we have a talky bit, now we have an action bit, because we don't want you to get bored and drift away. And the, the irony is, I get bored and drift away during, during the action, action bits. Yeah. Same for me and Avatar, yeah. the uh, James Cameron Avatar. Mm. There are two additional sequences to the 2017 version that aren't in the original, notably. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff, especially with the bad apple and Juliette Binoche, who's ordered to kill her, and she's... Very specifically, there's a I do not give my consent that uh, Scarlett Johansson says, and she's about to be injected anyway, and Benosh mutters, we never needed your consent, which is chilling. And it's quite a well-done scene, the idea that she's being treated like a thing who's being disposed of, and she has to break out and away from that. The scene with her reuniting with her mother is actually quite touching. Mm. I, I don't dislike this as storylines. I just feel they could have gone way further with it, and there's plenty of stuff left on the table. They, they leave the philosophy absent. And I would like to say that the whole show-don't-tell thing is great in principle, but we are sitting in several generations of cine illiterate people who don't understand the stuff they've been shown, maybe they should have been told. Cinema sins have taught them to not observe. 
to only look at the very literal stuff that's actually happening and to never look beneath the surface. CinemaSins have blundered through films like The Babadook, completely missing the subtext and encouraging everyone else to do the same. Maybe sometimes just fucking tell us. It, it, it won't make for more delicate or elegant films, but it might make for more delicate and elegant thoughtfulness in your audience. All making fun of the subtext. Hmm. Yeah. The, the two sequences I'm thinking of, one they go to a strip club and Scarlett Johansson gets almost immediately assaulted by these horrible fucking dudes, which thus gives her license to kick everyone's ass. But then there's almost a mirror scene of that where she finds a sex worker and they go up to a, a room quietly on their own. She asks the sex worker to take off this robotic looking fake mouth that she's wearing, almost like a, a mouth shield, and then gently but curiously touches this woman's face and the woman is scared and unsure of Motoko but it's a very physically and emotionally intimate moment and scene that I would frankly have been absolutely fine with being in this the the sex worker asks what are you and she mutters I don't know which is a re it's, it's it's telling not showing but it's also in a good engaging scene and the, uh, the battling the tank sequence, once again, rather than going, it's, I'm doing the Matrix music, that's propeller heads, uh, um, is quiet again. It's thought-provoking. It's almost like there's an inevitability to what's going on here, like Motoko was always going to end up on the floor, her body dis half-destroyed, about to be 100% destroyed as her own team in the helicopters are sent to destroy the puppet master whose body she currently resides in but also she's target number two it's like we've got to also take out the major just in case the puppet master has hacked her the uh, there's also a moment there when again batu shields her he tries to protect her with his arm yeah. and they just shoot straight through it yeah it's a, a beautiful and terrible sequence just in terms of how destructive it is this is the most crucial thing that is absent from the 2017 film. The reckoning back and forth as the puppet master negotiates with the major for them to merge, for them to combine their consciousnesses. The major challenges the puppet master in terms of, well, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to give up myself? It seems like I'd be giving up a lot and you'd be gaining a lot. Mm. She also questions why he wants her to do that, since he said part mm. of what he resents about being an entity in the network rather than an individual is that he can't reproduce and die. And she points out she technically can't reproduce either. She can't, because she's a cybernetic body, she can't have children for mm. him. So if that's what he wants then why is she the the source of his yeah. escape and it's a, a very cerebral back and forth which again the uh, american one the, the the fight with the tank actually reminded me of the fight at the end of the robocop remake that they eventually were fighting to make a be about not much of anything and, and just be about wicked bad apple michael keaton and then we take him out and everything's fine it's, there, is a, there is an element of the reclamation of the self, and it's better than it could have been, that Robocop remake. But it was one of those, well, we have to remake Robocop. Could you do it well? Well, we have to remake it. We'll see if we can do it well. I, the, the best part of that film is something that I wholesale took to uh, make a major theme of uh, Stone Spring Maidens, which is when the guy who is, receives a prosthetic new robotic arm is given his acoustic guitar 
and starts to try to play for the first time in God knows how long and he and his wife start to cry and then he starts to malfunction as because his emotions take no it's not his, he's over feeling it his emotions take over and he's not able to think his way through manipulating the fingers to pluck the strings or to hold the cords uh, Gary Oldman's character tells him to just sort of shut off the emotions and focus on just being able to go through the movements and he replies I need my emotions to play that was a fantastic part of the Robocop remake that almost outstrips every other version every other moment in every other Robocop film and so I just I took the idea of mechanical prostheses that you can make overload if you become too emotional. Can I try? Corin asked. Are you calm? Penny queried, aware that the answer was obviously no. The boy breathed and nodded, extending his right arm, both eyes scrunched shut. It's not going to latch on to you. Think of it like you've moved hands. You know how you move house, and you just need to get used to the new one. Be gentle with it. She removed the crown, attached the prosthetic to its adjustable cuff, and strapped that to the boy's trembling arm. The hand was oversized for his frame. It would have to last him a long time, and he would, if fortune smiled, grow into it. The fingers remained still, and Corin touched them nervously with those on his left hand. Could I put the crown on too? Might be an idea to wait a moment, to get used to the weight while I talk you through it. Mistress Renwick, please. I read four books on crystal physics. Corin said, a touch of indignation in his voice. I'm ready, I promise. Penny studied him a while. He already looked older, less afraid, his chin upturned, chestnut hair brushed aside, eyes steady. As you wish. She nodded gravely. You know to clear your mind first. Yes. And be aware you're probably going to get a surge of different emotions. Okay. Whatever happens, let me promise you, this will be alright. Penny slowly lowered the crown to fit over Corin's left ear. He shivered as he felt the connection and held up the new hand, which twitched. Now be ever so gentle at first. Just try waggling the fingers. He nodded, a tear in his eye as he gazed at the new appendage. The waggling began and his parents gushed in approval. <laughs> the boy panted with exertion and happiness, but Penny spotted something else in there, expanding. A confusion over unfamiliarity. And at the same time, the desperate longing of a phantom limb. The fingers spasmed and suddenly turned back on themselves, convulsing as the boy cried out in distress. Penny stepped in and snatched away the headset as he stared at the frozen, askew machinery, no longer resembling a hand. No, 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 no. He began to hyperventilate as his parents closed in. The father knelt and let the boy bury his head into the man's shoulder. Penny was lost for words, floundering where she stood. Corin, look at me, Ganymede said, an assertive rumble to his voice which snapped the lad out of his panic. Even the adults stopped in place to study the man as he removed his outer jacket, revealing a black and brass mechanical arm with yellow crystals at the shoulder, elbow, wrist, 
and in the same knuckles as Corin's hat. I understand what's happening here, and it's going to get so much better. I broke it! Corin cried out, holding the twisted shape up, unable to even look at the thing directly. In, in one minute, I broke it! We, we can't afford another one, ever! It's not broke. Let me take a look at it. Ganny reassured him. Then, with the deftness of many sons' practice, he reset the metal finger bones, clicking every part back into place. The child watched not only his own hand get reshaped into working order, but the learned skill and precision of an older man. Penny glanced at the parents who now had tears of their own streaming down their cheeks. She mouthed at Ganny an emphatic, Thank you. That is Stonespring Maidens, an interspecies lesbian crystal punk romance with mech suits. Available in paperback and Kindle form, and the audio drama on Bandcamp. But there is a, a window where you need to be able to access that side of yourself and making it a supreme challenge to be able to just function the way that human beings take for granted. So uh, the finale is... The police move in and destroy both bodies, but Batau is able to salvage bits of them and their brains and find, and this is fucking dodgy as hell. He's like, uh, yeah, found a body for you. You're not gonna like it. It's <laughs> it's a Victorian doll. <laughs> it's a Victorian doll child tween thing with Motoko's head on it. But they are now merged and one. They are now a new entity that wants to be more. And so when she looks out over the city in the final shot and says the, uh, the net is vast and infinite, there's this strange look on her face where you're, you're wondering how much of Matoko is still in there and how much of the Puppet Master and what's going to happen as a result of this. So it ends on a question mark, which is frankly a really good way to end a very philosophical, metaphysical movie. I also feel like the, the fact that she, that she has been given a child's body by necessity and the fact that she makes reference to herself as a newborn mm. she what that seems to be referring to to me is that she is carrying part of kusanagi and the puppet master but she is neither she is a child of both that ultimately is the the reproduction that he was after but both of them have had to sacrifice their selves in order to give birth, give to, birth to that child. Yeah. And the 2017 ScarJo one, uh, she survives. She gets uh, patched up again. They'll and tells fix her me. mom not to go to the grave anymore. They fix everyone. <laughs> and then she stands on the rooftop and says, you know, I've learned something today. And then jumps off the roof and does the uh, invisibility thing. So she's now Major uh, Motoko and ready for any kind of sequel you want to throw at us. And we can deal with all the hackers there. And it's the same ending as the 2017 Wonder Woman. And it's the same ending as Spider-Man. And it's the same ending as The Amazing Spider-Man. And it's the same ending as the 2003 Daredevil. And it's the same ending as Batman Begins, Hancock, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Catwoman. Our hero stands triumphant upon a tall building, says a few words to the effect of I have now self-actualized, and then jumps off into the sky. Big round of applause, credits. Early 2000s new metal. And I don't hate it as an ending, 
but it is very much a, we're gonna give you this, do you like that? Because we're gonna make sure that everyone's very comfortable by the end of this film. Which, considering that the whole, the whole of the original is designed to make you uncomfortable, seems to be a betrayal of the spirit of the thing. Indeed. Or this the is, ghost, if This you is will. what we call cozy cyberpunk. Yeah. Cottage cyberpunk, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> also, my arm's a flamethrower now. Check this out. <laughs> you dial down the heat a little bit on this? It's a flamethrower, Scarlet. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I, I, of everyone in the film, ScarJo and Takashi Kitano do their jobs admirably. They do. It's well photographed. I can see the action sequences until the end, which is all in a dark warehouse. Yes, this is structurally a movie. Well done. <laughs> They've, they've tried to do something slightly different with the city in that it is presided over by these giant holographic women that's like a, an extension of the uh, Japanese lady uh, on the billboards in Blade Runner. Again, yes, very Blade Runner. Uh, but it doesn't accomplish anything, so everyone walking out of the film will be like, eh, that, that, that filled two hours, as opposed to that blew my fucking mind mm -hmm. that The Matrix did. Yeah. It feels like it underachieved like crazy and it didn't make that much money. Mm -hmm. So, honestly, I would always far rather they took risks. Yeah. But I think, in a, in a way, the cinematic industry, and I do not mean by this the cinematic art side of things, but the cinematic industry has somewhat become we don't want to give you something that's going to blow your mind because if we do, you might forget to come back for the next two hour stint mm -hmm. that we want you to pay for. There's also a hefty dose of transhumanism and being trans in cyberpunk. The idea of transcending the body you began with to actually become a version of yourself that you're happy with. Make that film. Take the risk, folks. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. Our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Jorn Clawson, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas Hayo, Sarah Montgomery, and Kat Esman. And we will be back next week with another Wachowski-adjacent movie, V for Vendetta. So to conclude on Ghost in the Shell, find the best possible version of the 1995 anime original. I can absolutely vouch for the recent 4K remaster. The Blu-ray looks fantastic. I'd imagine the 4K looks good as well, but I had to sell it on eBay. With the proviso on the listing, it won't work in your Xbox One. 
And if you're curious about the 2.0 version, that should be not too expensive to find on the secondary market and worth seeing for kind of how they, they shifted it. But at the same time, it's like the Star Wars Special Editions. In that we're going to take that crap CG from 10 years ago and we're going to make crap CG from now 15 years ago. But, and Sharon, I think, would, uh, would add this one too. It's also worthwhile tracking down Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence, which is, again, a, a, a heavily Batau-related story. Motoko is not in it. She's... She cameos briefly. She cameos briefly at the end in a kind of, yay, she's back. But then it's a very brief action she's, sequence. She also appears in his visualizations. Yes. Yeah. She, she, he perceives her as being his sort of guardian angel. Yeah. Which is appropriate since the one of the final visions that Motoko experiences before she's blown to smithereens is an angel descending from heaven. Indeed, and meanwhile Batu is trying to shield her. <clears throat> also, I've got to uh, praise Atsuko Tanaka, who voiced Motoko in the uh, 94 original. She has this incredibly measured, calm, private voice. Does that make sense to say that her voice is private? Yeah. She, when she speaks, it almost feels like she could be saying these things to herself. Yeah, it's slightly dispassionate and removed, but it's very clear when she's pondering. So, honestly, this is an underrated vocal performance. そう、I've so been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And the, the net, net is vast, vast and infinite. infinite.